In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My guest today is the chef John Watts, who for many years prepared mouth-watering meals as a sous chef for one of Jamie Oliver's restaurants. Now he runs his own business, cooking for corporate and private clients. He learned his culinary skills while serving a prison sentence for committing an act of violence that almost took a man's life. His candid honesty about what led up to this act of violence may cause some listeners distress. So take this as a warning that what you're about to hear is at times unpleasant, but equally important. It's so important to understand because if we do, we can do more to help prevent young men like John from committing what statistically becomes a knife crime. So you're a chef. I am, yeah. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a chef? Because everybody can define themselves as a chef I can say I'm a chef but I can't cook (laughs) I don't know and I think the lines are blurred nowadays as well because with social media everybody is a chef and you're seeing food bloggers who are uh, not really chefs but they are putting out good food and people are following the recipes so I don't know what it means to be a chef I guess because it's all I do (laughs) what is it you do so I work for myself since COVID so before COVID I had a corporate contract and a uh, events contract and then I'll take on all sorts of things from anything up to sort of 300 people really now since COVID everything like literally disappeared overnight so I've been a private chef so I have three clients across four days in the week and then I'll sort of do recipes around that which I sort of make a little income from and uh, sort of other private events when there's no lockdown I'll do you know private gigs whether it's a barbecue or a dinner party stuff like that and what sort of stuff are you cooking it's always different for my regular clients it's usually like a three-course meal if I was going to tell you the most common three-course meal I do it'd be uh, scallops with truffle and porcini beef wellington 
from Maine and then like a chocolate fondant for dessert. That's like the, a typical John Watts free course meal. John Watts free course meal. Let's go back to your beginning, John. Where'd you come from uh, and what was life like for you growing up? Um, I grew up in Oxford. Um, I would say I had a pretty average upbringing. Um, Mum and dad both working all the time. Uh, I was one of five, so didn't really have much money. Um, it's a lot of like hand-me-down stuff like that. I would say pretty average. Went to school, came home, saw my mates. When did you first get in trouble with the police? Uh, first time I ever got in trouble with the police, I think I was 15. And I was setting bins alight around the town. And uh, Setting bins alight? Yeah, I was just I was just a little shit, to be honest. Like just doing really sort of petty things. I think, I don't even know why whether it was attention or I don't know. But I was about, I think I was 14 or 15. I was going around setting bins alight for shits and giggles, really. And uh, one day... On your own or was you doing it with some of your mates? Yeah, with a group of mates. And then one day the police sort of came along and saw me mid-sticking something burning in the bin. And, and yeah, I was arrested. I remember being in the police station and my dad came in to be my sort of... Um, whatever they call it, responsible adult. And I just thought it was funny. I don't think anyone sort of realised at that point that maybe I was going to start on a little downward spiral. But you did? I did, yeah. So that just gives an example of the sort of little shit sort of things I would do. Everything else I got in trouble for after that tended to be for fighting. So I sort of got got involved with uh, a lot of older lads who I looked up to and respected you know, when I look back now, they were, you know, a lot of them on drugs, had alcohol problems, uh, always getting in trouble with the law. Um, but at the time, I respected them. Why do you think that is? Why do you think you went from a kid who was just average, going to school, coming home, doing what we do, that you were looking for that little bit more excitement that was not necessarily legal? I think it just gives a sense of belonging. I think that's what I felt was missing. I didn't feel like my life had any kind of purpose. So I was sort of filling my time with something that made me feel wanted, I suppose. And then again, I think maybe the adrenaline rush. I think when you're young, when you're a young male, I think you sort of, you really want that sort of adrenaline all the time, don't you? Do you think you were influenced by by the guys and girls that were around you at the time? uh, Yes, certainly when I was younger, I was, yeah. So the first time you got in trouble with the police, your dad come to the police station, did you get a hiding, you know, a good smack for, for getting in trouble with the police? I mean, how did your dad deal with you at that time? I can't really remember how he dealt with it. I don't, I mean, the fact I can't remember means probably not a lot happened. I remember going into school the next day thinking I was, you know, Billy Big Bollocks because I'd just been arrested. So I was going around with a big smirk on my face. You know, you know how they used to talk about it being a badge of honour when you got in trouble. It was like that, you know, I'm walking around like, yeah, I'm bad. I got arrested last night. So there was nothing about it that made me think, oh, maybe I should stop getting in trouble. (laughs) What happened next? What was the the next thing you did? You mentioned that you, you started getting into a lot of fights and stuff like that. Was that a kind of bravado thing? I mean, was that driven by you bullying people or being bullied? I mean, where was that coming from? I think, it, again, it was mixing with the people I was mixing with. It sort of almost formed, I don't like to use the word gang, but, you know, it, it was a group of us. And 
we would sort of have feuds with lads from other towns. I think back in uh, 2007, it was very common uh, around Britain. They used to call it Broken Britain, I think. And I think a lot of lads between the age of, I don't know, 15 and 21 were all, all seemed to be getting into trouble, all seemed to be feuding with other places. And, yeah, I think it was bravado. And I think getting sucked up into that world, I felt like I wanted to be feared. I think I got a sort of rush out of people thinking I was some kind of nutter. I, would, I always felt like I had something to prove. Just I would get involved in stupid little disputes. Often I was getting involved in violence and I was arrested quite a few times for quite a few different sort of violent offences, but nothing too major. So it was either a police caution or thrown out before anything ever went to court. Gradually at that time, it was all sort of progressing. So it was not uncommon to be walking down the street and you'd get a car of lads jump out with baseball bats, golf clubs, knives, anything like that. So it started to get like quite serious. And were you one of those in the car jumping out or were you the victim of those? I never became a victim. Um, I had been in cars, yeah, sort of going around on the lookout, almost hunting people down, I suppose. It sounds so sort of stupid when I say it now, but that's just what it was like at the time. What was the purpose of hunting someone down then? I mean, were, were they an enemy and why were they an enemy? Yeah, I would say enemy. And it was at the beginning of social media, like before Facebook, I think it's Bebo the name was called. And everyone was on it and there was just sort of like, it got started as like a bit of petty name call and ended up being sort of almost a <laughs> a middle class gang war. And I think at, at a young age, especially when you know, words mean a lot. <laughs> it's very hard to sort of shrug things off, you know. Somebody's saying something to you, calling you a name, calling your mum something, or maybe threatening, you know, there was a lot of sort of threats on the houses and things like that. So it sort of became almost defending your pride and, and and you know, my friends as well. So, you know, my friends were victims of being attacked. So then it would become, right, now we're going to go over there. Um, and then that, that just sort of escalated. I mean, I would often sort of take out weapons. In the early days, I remember I stuck a dumbbell bar into my jeans. I went round my mate's house. And that night, the police had been all over sort of the local community telling telling people that, you know, they were expecting a busload of lads to come down from another place. So I go round my mate's house and then his mum's, you know, she's she was always like a jokey one and she was sort of like having a little flirt, having a little joke. She's like, oh, I'm going to search you before you go out. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, she sort of brushed me down and found this big metal bar in my trousers. And then she took it off me. And then from then, I went and got a knife I had at home. And uh, that knife never left my side. So it's a little flick knife. And I would carry it as if I was carrying my keys, phone and wallet. Like if I ever left the house without it, um, you know, I'd run back and be like, oh, shit, I forgot, forgot the knife. So, yeah, it got, got quite serious in that sense. And the knife that you carried, I've I've spoken to many guys who carried knives, used knives, been the victim of a knife attack. And I've heard quite a lot that the reason they carried the knife was for self-defense. Now, you and I know, and all those other guys and girls know that a knife is not a defensive weapon. It's an attacking weapon. You know, you cut things with a knife. You can stab things with a knife. And as a chef, you'll know that more than 
than most people. Why, why did you carry that knife? I mean, I get it that you carried it in the same way you carried a bunch of keys. But what, what was the purpose of carrying that knife? Did you have the intention to use that knife or was it just it made you feel, you know, another inch taller? Certainly for defence, because I knew, I know if you pull out a knife and somebody sees it, well, it's probably not the case, but you sort of think they're going to back away. But I think it's also a sort of a tool of fear, you know. If you pull out a knife, then it doesn't matter who you're facing, they're, they're going to be scared. And I think it was that. And again, going back to what I said about being feared and people thinking I'm a bit of a nutter, that I think that in itself is a bit of, was a bit of a defence mechanism. If people thought this guy's a nutter, they're just going to be a little bit more careful. And that was the sort of reputation I ended up getting. Were you a nutter? At the time, I think probably a little bit in the sense I was just sucked I was just sucked into that little world you wanted to be the biggest and the baddest among all the kids and all the guys that were getting involved in in violent actually wanted to be the one they feared the most yeah exactly and I took sort of joy in that when once I was 18 I took joy that the 15 and 16 year olds then were looking up to me so suddenly you know it made me feel powerful when I look back now you know I know I wasn't powerful I know I was pathetic but at the time I felt powerful how did it manifest I mean as well as getting involved in these kind of group or gang related violence were you also involved in criminality and by that I mean other forms of criminality you know thievery and that kind of stuff Uh, on a small scale uh, yeah but not as sort of like any means to income or anything like that you know, a lot of my friends were small-time drug dealers and things like that, but all very sort of petty and all sort of, to be honest, everyone was involved in stuff like that, mainly for the bravado. But, yeah, I mean, I was only, once the sort of, um, once sort of shit hit the fan, I was only 18, so I was still a boy sort of coming up in that world, really. You mentioned earlier, you know, the media's portrayal of different parts of Britain as being broken, broken Britain. Do you think these these kind of moral panics that were created by the media about what was going on in different pockets of the country among young men and probably young girls too, or the mix, drove that that sense of wanting to have the worst reputation, for example, because you you were aware of it, you know, that the media were calling broken Britain. Do you think you then started to play up to this moral panic? If people were saying that Britain was broken, you were going to make it even more broken yeah I think so I think what you said there about being the best you know you almost because it you know I had my group of my group that I would hang around with and we wanted to be the sort of the worst I suppose probably all the other lads that we were feuding with probably wanted to be the worst and I, I was you know from Oxford it's a small quite a small area there's no reason for anything like that to be going on but I know at the time it was going on in every nook and cranny in the country and I've never really thought about it but yeah I think perhaps the label of broken Britain had probably quite a lot to play for it. Was there a turning point for you when you were 18? For stuff to go bad or? Yeah I mean you know you you, you've talked about being involved in a gang or group who were being attacked or going out seeking revenge for attacks you know being involved in a lot of violence you talk about carrying bars and knives and did you ever use the knife on anybody uh yeah so 
things just sort of gradually went downhill. And I was saying myself as well, I'd left school. I had a couple of like dead end jobs. And I, I think in myself, I just suffered with like low self-esteem, started to lack confidence. I always felt like as a young lad, I always felt like I had potential to do something and to be someone. But I just had no idea how or why. And I never felt like I had any guidance from that like, school or family. So I very much felt lost. And that's how I always describe it. I just felt lost, which then just sort of led me sort of deeper into what I what I was doing because that's where I felt like I belonged. I just felt like I was deep inside that world. And I I, I just remember one night I, I was sat on my own for a little bit um, and I'd had a bit of a drink. I was waiting for some of my mates to know what they were off doing. I just felt so low, like the, probably the lowest I've ever felt in my life. And then I'd had a few drinks and I'd gone into town and came across someone who I'd had a few problems with in the past. And uh, I can't remember what was said, but I basically pulled this knife out on him after a little altercation. Completely unnecessary. And uh, one, of my, one of my friends behind me had obviously seen the knife. So he basically pushed me out of the way, started punching this lad and, you know, told him to fuck off. So he basically saved him and saved me from from doing anything at that point but I just felt this strange wave of anger over me and I can't really explain it other than I I just had I don't know I had to let it out so a couple hours later I'm in in the town and uh, one of my friends gets in another altercation it was normal for us back then like you you couldn't walk 100 meters without someone having some sort of problem with something it was just the vibe we were giving off I suppose and uh, it was just me and this other mate. Um, uh, sorry, a little bit later on, we're walking, we're walking uh, out of the town and we're into this sort of bit more secluded area and the same guy came up and he had a little fight with my mate. So I got involved, put him down, pulled out a knife, stabbed him a couple of times. Didn't even think anything of it. For me, it was a release. It was a, a release of the anger, I suppose. Not thinking at the time I would actually be doing some serious, serious damage to someone and potentially killing someone. He didn't die, and I was so close to taking his life, I suppose, for absolutely nothing. The only real reason he was able to survive was because he started walking uh, another way towards the town, and a police officer happened to be coming down the hill. She was like immediately on the scene to sort of, you know, stop any bleeding and get assistance. I always find it quite interesting. She was the only person that ever tried to sort of steer me in the right direction. Like, I knew her very well. Whenever I was arrested, she would always be there. Whether she was a, the arresting officer or not, she'd always be there to sort of take me home, have a chat, have a have a cigarette, you know. She's always trying to talk me out of sort of the way I was going. Um, and she just happened to be there on that night. Right place, right time to save his life. I suppose that is, a, in a way, a little second chance there because it would have been both our lives done, I think, if if he happened to die. Your guardian angel, some might say. I, I when, don't like that. I mean, this accumulation of, of anger, loneliness, you know, where you hit this pinnacle point where you felt alone. So you had this group of friends, but you must have realized they weren't actually friends. They were just people that you did bad things with. Let me just ask you a couple of things. When you were at that lowest, you mentioned that you didn't have any guidance. What What do you think 
would have helped you at that moment? What do you think could have been available now that you're older and wiser? Who do you think could have stepped in? Your parents, um, some outsider? Because we often hear about mentors, mentoring young men who are going down the wrong road uh, and what impact that can make or some other organization that provides some sort of service to steer young boys and girls away from a life of crime or prison, etc. What do you think, if anything, some, to some people there's nothing, John, is there? I mean, but yeah. do you think there could have been an intervention at that point that saved you from what you then went on to do? I just think any sort of um, guidance for the next stage of my life, any sort of careers guidance would have been good. I've always partly blamed the school in a sense. I was sit- sitting in class in the last sort of few months of school and everyone was taking their time to go to the careers advisor, you know, one by one. And it never got round to me. And I think it's because my last name's W. They must have just ran out of time or something. And at that point, at, you know, being, uh, I think, 15 or 16, leaving school, I feel like you need some sort of idea of what you're going to go on and do, whether it's an apprenticeship, leave school and go get a job, uh, higher education. I think you need some kind of idea. And I had absolutely no idea of what, you know, from going from having that regime at school, you know, you know what you're doing. You're going to school, you're in this year, you're going to that class, you get given your timetable to then being sort of let out in the world where there's no routine. I think that was sort of what just made me feel lost. Suddenly I was in this world and had no idea what to do, had no idea what I could do or how to do it. So I think any sort of guidance in that sense would have been a massive help to me at that time. That's such Um, an important message, actually. And I hope people listening to this recognise that in their own kids that they're worried about at, at, at the moment, especially given schools are closed at the moment. There are lots of teenagers who are at home, who are not being homeschooled because parents have to work or whatever the reason, you know, it it must be even more difficult now for those kids to have a routine or to create a routine for those kids to keep them focused, not just on their education, but away from the distractions that could lead them into trouble, whatever that trouble might be. It might just be drinking alcohol, taking drugs. So, So it's interesting that you say just a bit more guidance from the school in in what you could have done next or the preparation for you leaving school is important. I mean, yes, I'd say 80, 90% of that responsibility does lie with the school. The rest lies with you sort of seeking out those opportunities. But as you said, if your surname ends with W, X, Y, or Z, you may never get that call. The other thing I wanted to just pick up on is, is the moment that you and your friend beat down this other kid They were beaten, but you had this knife, this knife that you were carrying, John, as part of, you know, an extension to who you was as this nutter on the street with your group of guys. Was it an accumulation? I'm just trying to think that you've been carrying this knife and there's been occasions where you've probably pulled it out and threatened people, but there come a time where you felt the need to take it out and actually use it. And when you did... Was it because you wanted to experience what it was like actually stabbing someone? Was it because you wanted the person that was already beaten to fear you even more and then take that message into the world that if you fuck with John, you're going to suffer the consequences in a way that you 
would find unimaginable stabbing, for example. I'm just trying to get into your head at the moment that you took that knife out and were prepared to push it into the body of another young man. He was a bit of an older guy. It started a few. He was actually friends with an older lot that I was talking about earlier, which actually started another little feud. But it's hard to say what uh, to sort of answer that because it's such a blur to me now. What exactly I was thinking at that moment, I don't think I was thinking any further than the next second. I think for me, it, perhaps was it to instill fear. You know, to to show you know I'm the boss. Maybe, yeah, I think so. What did it feel like to you when you stabbed another person? I did, I genuinely, whether it's blocked from my memory, like I I can't really remember the moment. Luckily for that person, your victim, the guardian angel, I'll call her, the police officer turned up and was able to administer you know sort of first aid which i don't know how serious the stab wounds were but it sounds they were serious enough that you have thought about the fact this individual could have died what happened as a result of that that stabbing were you arrested and charged so i was arrested uh, the next day so it happened late at night on a saturday i was arrested the sunday evening uh, and then released on bail i actually admitted in interview what had happened I hadn't slept that night before I I didn't take a solicitor in with me but I was in this sort of (laughs) weird weird mess of a mind at the time and I went in and pretty much admitted what happened and for some reason I have no idea why to this day I was bailed while they were still sort of seeking further evidence they were taking uh, all the DNA and everything I ended up being bailed until I think December I was charged. So Sorry, this happened in June, so it was almost six months. And then I was charged and then bailed again, even when I was charged. No idea why. Like, during that time, during my time on bail, I'd been battered. I'd had my uh, eye socket and my nose broken. Was this Um, revenge attacks for the stabbing? Yeah. I'd been arrested once. I was uh, drink driving on a moped in the early hours of the morning. So I don't know why they didn't remind me when I was charged. It all seems quite odd, but anyway, I was. Uh, And then I went to court in January of 2008 and I pleaded guilty. So obviously by that point I was remanded. What did you plead guilty to? So I pleaded guilty to GBH with intent, so GBH section 18. Um, And I was remanded, went to Reading Young Offenders, uh, with the idea that I was going to be sentenced in February. First time inside? Yes. So throughout your young career as a violent criminal, this was actually the first time that you were experiencing the inside of a of a prison? Yeah. And this was a remand centre for grievous bodily harm? Uh, yeah, well, YOI, young offenders. And then during my time... Uh, in in Reading and sort of awaiting sentence, somebody came forward about another offence, which had happened quite a bit earlier, I think perhaps over a year before I was actually in the jail. And then I was charged with that as well. So that was an ABH. So sort of my sentencing got put off. Well, they sorted that one out. And then eventually, and I think it was June or July, I was sentenced for the both of them. What was your sentence? 
six years for the GBH within 10 and six months consecutively for the ABH. So I've got six and a half years. How old were you at the time? Uh, at the time of sentencing, 19. So you started your sentence in a young offenders institution? Yes. And were you bouncing around in that institution like like we have the image of young offenders all bouncing around like they're tough, pushing out their chest because most teenagers who are in young offenders institutions have to give off that aura? I mean, what was it like for you? Or was it an awakening call at that point that the reality is that as tough and as hard as you thought you were on the streets of Oxford, when you've ended up in a young offenders institution, there were much, much more nuttier kids than even you were um I found that awakening moment came in my time on bail because I knew I knew I was going to get charged I knew I was going to end up getting a what I thought was a fairly long sentence so I think that time then it hit me and at least something twigged in my mind I almost knew like when I was still going and seeing some of my mate I I actually stopped seeing a lot of them after that moment because it created a whole sort of feud you know some people I were close to suddenly had become enemies during that time so I had a sort of much smaller circle at that point but I knew that the chances of them still being around in a few years was so slim so I think I had some sort of mental awakening then so when I did actually go into the prison I think I was sort of mentally prepared to sort of go in with a view that do everything I can to change myself, to change how I've been and hopefully come out a better person. So I'm now looking back, I'm very grateful that I had that time on bail to sort of sit and reflect because had I gone into the jail the day after the stabbing, I think it would have been a very different story. So as you entered the the young offenders institutions, you were looking for a way out almost immediately rather than getting caught up in, in what, can go on in these places to make you probably an even worse person than you were when when you went you went in I don't want to go into too much detail about what life was like for you as a as a young offender in the institution but I am interested in the advantage you took of that you you talked about just now that you you knew that when you went in you wanted to change your life how did the young offenders institution change your life I mean, looking back now, the biggest things was I um, did the Duke of Edinburgh's awards. At the time, when I went in, I was signing up for everything. You know, it started out with just doing educational classes, you know, redoing maths tests and business studies classes. And then I I heard that they were doing the Duke of Edinburgh's award in there. So I thought, you know, I'm in for a couple of years. At the time, I didn't know I was in for a couple of years, but, you know, I thought I would be. And... um, I did, I knew that that would be something that would help when I was out just because it's at the time when I was at school people would use it to get into university it was almost like a badge you know hey I'm good so I saw it like oh that's all it's gonna be I'm just gonna have this little badge when I come out which is at least something to say that hey I've done something with my time so anyway I signed up for it and over the sort of three and a bit years I was in there it acted as as a template for me it helped to just build me into a better person in like every single way, whether it was building my self-esteem, building my confidence, learning empathy. So I don't know if when, when you were in the prison, did they have listeners who were like uh, prisoners trained by the Samaritans? 
I think they were probably different in my time. You didn't quite have listeners, um, not not in the way that they've developed over the years, working with the Samaritans, you know, having their own brand, if you like, in terms of T-shirts and things like that. Just before you give me more detail, I just want to make, I just want to try and understand the bridge because you talked a lot about, you know, school letting you down or them not quite providing that bridge between you leaving school and going out into the wide world. Did the prison service or the Young Offenders Institution Service, whatever it is, did that provide that bridge? Did they, I mean, it's one thing you kind of find in a new John, building your self-esteem and character that then led you on the path that you you, you pursued in, in prison. But were those people in prison, and I'm talking about the people, the staff and people that work in the prison, were they your now guidance? Did did they come to you and start guiding you down the right path? The guidance that you didn't get that moment you felt alone when you were on the outside? Yeah, definitely. So there were two prison officers in particular. Uh, they were both gym officers and they were sort of taking on the Duke of Edinburgh's award. So they were sort of seeing me through that as well. Not just me, obviously, but many other lads. And I think they took a very sort of personal approach to it whether or not you know they I think they were sort of coming in more than they would have to to sort of get things done I think I just felt like they were really there helping me and the others get through sort of working through those stages of the award what is the Duke of Edinburgh Awards well it's, it's a, a number of different sections so you've got the expedition you've got a skill section a physical section and a and a volunteering section so the volunteering, I was a listener and I was um, there for other prisoners and I was hearing all sorts of stories and, you know, things that people were going through. And I think that sort of uh, made me learn to be have a bit, little bit more empathy for people, you know, hearing that other people go through things, which I think is something I was always disengaged from before. The physical section, obviously most, most people in prison are going to the gym, but, you know, it helps with your mental health and it makes you feel like you're achieving something as you sort of grow in size and improve your fitness. The skill section, obviously I learned to cook, which then went on to become my career. And I think that was just, that was giving me hope, I suppose, because I was learning to cook and I was getting a qualification, which as I've come out, I've realized, you know, a qualification in cooking doesn't mean anything at all. <laughs> just go and get a job. But at the time I felt like I was going to be able to get a job you know, I was able to get out of prison and actually get employment, which I think is something that most prisoners worry about is getting work because you always fed this sort of story that once you're in prison, you can't get a job anywhere and you'll struggle to get a job anywhere. So I think, you know, that was sort of helping with giving me some sort of goal for when I did eventually get released. And then the expedition section, I think that's where you sort of learn about working with others, problem solving, which is the sort of thing at the time I perhaps needed to just work on. And I think all of those things together just sort of gave me a good solid base to work with. Why was it, I mean, I understand that working towards becoming a good cook or or learning how to cook or becoming a chef would provide you with a certificate that you could then use to go out and, and find a job. And you've explained very powerfully, I think, 
the desire amongst prisoners to come out and, and find work, which inevitably ends up not happening and they end up going back to prison. One of the biggest problems we have in this country with recidivism rates, you know, the revolving door of people coming out of prison, even when they have the best intentions and, and will in the world without, you know, people like the two officers you talked about being dedicated to helping you change your life. If there are not people like that to support you, not just in prison, but that transition when you come out of prison, the likelihood is for people who have lots of other problems, whether it's, you know, home, relationships, stuff like that, their destiny is to potentially foul and end up going back to prison because they commit crime because they can't get a job or they're homeless, etc. Why was it the, the chef cooking element that you embrace more than, than anything else, do you think? Was it because you were a good cook or you just enjoyed the taste of your own food? <laughs> um, honestly, it was the easiest one to do in the prison. They had a lot of sort of courses that didn't have real qualifications, um, which were great to do, but they wouldn't have really offered anything in the outside world. And that one was a real qualification, an MVQ, City and Guilds. So it was that. <laughs> Plus, it gave you opportunity to get the best job in the jail eventually, which was in the officers' mess, which is basically a cafe for the officers and you're, you know, cooking all sorts of things. You know, the real pull was that it was easy or, you know, the best one to do. I didn't find my sort of passion, which is funny when you, if you sort of know me now, I'm extremely passionate about what I do. At the time, I thought cooking was going to be a job. I didn't think it was going to be a lifestyle. When your sentence came to an end, how was you able to use what you'd learned during your time in prison in your newfound freedom? I was in a resettlement unit for the last 10 or 11 months. So in Reading, and had you changed, had you in those three years, I think you said you'd done three years out of the six and a half years, which would yeah. be the halfway yeah. point. And because of your good behaviour, I suppose, and progress, um, you, you serve half of your sentence. H- had you, I mean, you'd learnt these skills, but had John changed, did John still have this internal suffering and violence streak? Or did that all now disappeared? A- absolutely disappeared. I grew so much as a person, changed so much as a person. I think when I didn't, a lot of my old friends from sort of before prison, I have never seen again to this day. The ones I have seen, obviously now we're talking quite a few years later, but even right after, nobody sort of could believe the change I made. I just felt like in myself as well, I felt like I'd grown as a person so much, changed as a person and everything as well, down to even just having more of a conscious awareness of people and other people's feelings. Like I'm probably one of the least sort of violent and angry people anyone's ever met nowadays. And this was even a a few years ago once I was released. It's very weird. It's hard for me to explain why, because I don't know why I was able to make that sort of drastic change, taking me away from the environment I was in, I suppose. And how do you feel about the person you used to be, and in particular the crime that led to you going to prison, the stabbing of another man? How do you feel about that now? Sometimes I, I don't even realise it's me. When I think about it, when I talk about it, I feel like I'm telling a story that it's not actually me that did that. Uh, when I think about the the crime, I am deeply ashamed because 
to to put somebody else through that not just that person but also you know in the more recent years I've started to think about the family you know the sister the brother the mum the dad the granddad you know getting a call saying that their son is is in uh, you know real trouble we've been stabbed you know I'm getting like sort of shivers now thinking about it. I honestly cannot believe that that was me, that I did that to another human being. And, and uh, you know, it's something, it's quite difficult to take, I suppose. But at the same time, you know, the, the past is the past and there's nothing I can do to change that now. Have you ever had the opportunity of saying sorry? I haven't, no. There's a lot of, uh, I think still to this day, to be honest, if I was to go back in that area, I would come up against quite a bit of hostility. Well, look, John, I don't want to drag you back to the past because you now have and are leading a very successful future. And tell me about that, because you you left prison, you know, your sentence did come to an end. What were you able to go on and do? And what this is obviously your second chance at life. You know, you had your first, you went to prison, you come out, and I'm using the term second chance. Is that how you see it? Tell me what happened next. I was given a job by um, Jamie Oliver. So the I, famous chef, Jamie Oliver. Yeah, big, big celebrity chef, Jamie Oliver, in Reading. So when I left prison, I was immediately away from the people I'd been with before. I was away from home, and I had a job, and it was a that's where my passion began is in that restaurant there and I was around so many chefs that just loved what they did you know the passion was sort of coming off them you could feel it and I was just cooking with fresh vegetables and fruits and things that I'd never seen or heard of even though I'd been doing an MVQ for two years in a jail I'd never even heard of certain things things like a celeriac I hadn't even heard of this big brain looking vegetable and then I'm you know preparing things with it it was just I think I fell in love with it then. I fell in love because I saw how other people felt about it. And then suddenly smelling all these fresh herbs. I still, whenever I smell fresh mint now, I'm just like, it takes me back to that sort of first, first few months in those kitchens. And yeah, I just absolutely fell in love with it. I was working all the time. So once I was released, I was actually working sort of like six days a week, often full days. And I didn't stop. I mean, going down the line a little bit, I started going into London to work in restaurants for free. I would email places and say, oh, I've got two days off. Can I come and work for you? Because I didn't have a life, obviously, leaving the prison and going into a new town. I didn't have friends, really. I didn't have many people around me. So work sort of just took me away from that and became my life. So I was working for free for a couple of days, slaving away in the kitchen for another five days. But I absolutely loved it. I loved learning more. And yeah, it became a bit of a love affair, I suppose. Did did your criminal record uh, and the crime that you'd served time for, did that get in the way, in any way, of you progressing in these kitchens? No, not at all. Um, I think ha- having having achieved the gold award, even though it's it did help me and it is just a badge, it I think that helped sort of people think, oh, he achieved something. Because I was, think I was the first person in custody to get all free. I mean, that came a lot down to luck, to be honest, and timings and things like that. But You say that, but it sounds to me that you put a lot of hard work into changing who you you were to who you've become. So I think you should relish and, and embrace the fact that you achieved something for the first time that no one else has has achieved. Maybe luck did come into it, John, but I suspect 
that the hard work and dedication that you and the, the, the members of staff that worked with you and other prisoners, no doubt, and I suspect some of your family who supported you on, on the outside, that all of that accumulates into the big jigsaw puzzle, which is who John Watt is today, which is a successful chef, right? Yeah, like to think so. <laughs> um, what do you do today? So uh, I worked for Jamie's for about five or six years and I started up on my own. So in 2015, <laughs> I didn't know where to go. I think in another, you know, feeling lost scenario, I didn't really know where to go. So I was so used to being where I was and I loved it, but I wanted something new and I couldn't find a place that sort of gave me the satisfaction. So I just decided one day I was going to start on my own. <laughs> Very much told everyone I started a business and ended up just working agency for about a year. Well, still believing in my head I had this business and I was working it and Marara. Um, ended up getting a food truck, which was good fun. That went on and I ended up getting a, a, a corporate contract for the X Factor, actually. And what then, does that mean, rocking up in your truck, providing food to, I don't know, the audience or, or the the participants in the X Factor? What does that actually yes, mean? Uh, well, the food truck sort of got me out there a bit. Once I had that, I got a bit of a name for myself, especially locally. I was going to people's houses, either with the food truck or cooking in the kitchen, because I was also doing like private dining, like a sort of private chef experience. And uh, someone had come to my food truck and knew somebody in the X Factor. So I ended up in the X Factor house with all the um, contestants cooking for them, sort of lunch and dinners every day. And, you know, all the judges coming in as well. It was quite a quite an odd experience, but a good one. And then after that, I got a corporate contract, which, again, it just sort of... <laughs> I, I, I see everything as luck. It's like a, how this corporate contract landed on my lap, I don't know. But I think actually it comes down to I do and have worked very, very hard. And I think people see that. So I ended up with this corporate contract and and then an events contract. And that was all going up until sort of COVID came along and it was going very well. And when COVID happened, I sulked for a couple of weeks, but then I sort of, you know, got up off, off my ass and uh, ended up getting a couple of private clients. So now I'm very much, at the moment with COVID still going on, I'm very much a private chef. I've got three clients across four days of the week. And then it, when it and restrictions allow it, I can take on other, another sort of day as a private private thing. And I like to think I'm pretty successful. I mean, I have a broad client list nowadays rather than people sort of saying, emailing me and saying, can you do Saturday the 23rd of January? I have people saying, can I have any Saturday you have free this year? I have celebrities will move dates around so that they can have me. They'll change the whole party just so they can have me cook for them. I'm at that sort of stage. And uh, on top of that, you know, I create recipes. I think something I'm really passionate about, you know, the working is I love it. I love the cooking. But then I create recipes and I share them online and I get a little income from that. And and I also get to sort of spread a little bit of joy as well. You know, I get people, at, you know, telling me how much they love my recipes, how much they love, how easy I make it for them. And I think that gives me just a little little bit of joy. You know, well, you should take more than just a little bit of joy. It sounds incredibly successful what, what you, you know, from where you've come from, I think, you know, you cannot hesitate to to champion, you, you know, your past, which has made your, your future because, let me ask you this. Had you not gone down the road you'd gone down, 
i.e. getting in trouble. And I'm not advocating that people should go down the road of getting in trouble in order to end up in prison, etc., etc. That's not what I'm advocating at all. But it is who you are. And you are who you are today because of the journey that you've been on. And so that experience can be used to, I think, educate and inform others. And I think you did that very cleverly when you talked about the, the bridge between education and the support you didn't get there. But in another institution, unfortunately, in this case, the Young Offenders Institution, you were given the support by two mentors, it sounds like. I'm sure there were there were others whose dedication led to you becoming you know, a very successful chef. What more is there for you to achieve in the world of chefing? Uh, in the world of chefing, I mean, just continuing what I'm doing. I think I did have some uh, business plans pre-COVID and whether or not that goes ahead, I don't know. But for me, the most important thing is enjoying what I do. I'm not driven by money. I like to have money. I like to, to be able to pay bills <laughs> but I'm not driven by money I think for me the the real drive is enjoying what I do so I always tell people my biggest fear is falling out of love with what I do so for me as long as I carry on carry on enjoying it you know that's key I think also for me it's it, it, my story is part of the cooking you know it comes into it it's a part of me the journey is a part of me and that comes through into the food I think as a chef it's almost like think of a fashion designer you know they take inspiration from around them I think being a chef is very very similar and I take inspiration from from my life and from my journey and I feel like when I put out food everything that I've been through in the last 15 years is coming through that and that's why like I I, I could have very easily never told anyone that I had been in prison my story was, wasn't covered by the media very much. Like You can't find much other than what I've allowed to be in the media. Sometimes I sort of sit back and think, maybe I should have just, you know, stepped away from it. But at the end of the day, it is a part of my story, where I am. And I think it's, it's a special story for me, but also for other people. Like I often go and talk in... Uh, whether it's prisons, I mentor young offenders, I talk to everybody actually, sometimes it's conferences for corporations. But I find that being able to inspire people with what I've been through, you know, that's another part of the journey. And it's just something I, I don't know, I think allowing my story to be out there in order to help other people is something that's important to me. And also, like I say, the, the fact that it becomes this one big journey you know, my food now being related to a kid in Ireland that's going through a similar thing to what I went through, if that makes sense. It does. Are you somebody who believes that everybody deserves, despite their background, despite what they've done, everybody deserves a second chance? Or do you believe it's 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 a moment in time where you you have an epiphany, if you, if you like? I don't know whether it was the moment that you were granted bail, whether it was the moment that police officer was administrating first aid to, to your victim, whether it was sitting in a prison cell knowing that your life had been destined to to, to end up in prison. Yeah, I, I do believe that everybody deserves a second chance. The amount of people that I come across who say to me, I almost fell into trouble. You know, it can happen to anybody um, and, every, and everybody's circumstance is different. Often I hear people say, 
and people say to me, you know, oh yeah, you deserve a second chance, but a murderer doesn't. And I'm like, you don't know the circumstances. You know, do I think someone like Myra Hindley deserves a second chance? I think that one I'd have to think about for a few moments. But in general, I just I don't think I don't think we as people should be too quick to judge on that. I think and going back to what you just said, actually, what you asked, what does a second chance mean to me? I think a second chance is opportunity. I think nobody's ever come and sat there and handed me a second chance, but it's been a series of opportunities over time that have been handed to me that over time has led to me having what you would call now is one big second chance. And I think those little opportunities should be given to everybody no matter the circumstances, those little opportunities, and then that's where somebody can take it or they won't take it. If somebody wants John Watts culinary cooking taste, how do they get it? You say that people can book you to cook for them if they can, or if you've got the time, how can people do that? I'm sure there are lots of listeners right now who would love to taste whatever it is you would be prepared to cook for them if you have the time. How could they do that? Um, At the moment, it's sort of private bookings. I'm pretty much fully booked until August, (laughs) which is quite amazing given the circumstances we're in at the moment. And I'm very grateful. In the future, who knows? I would love a little cookery school, little fun one. That was my business plan pre pre COVID cookery school, little deli. We'll see. What it sounds happens. like you've achieved almost everything you've set out to to achieve. I, I just want to end this on the note that I've been thinking about from the beginning. And you said, you know, when you were a young boy, you you knew there was more to you than met the eye. You knew that that you could do something, and and that. You, you you were going to become something, but then you went on this spiral of, of uncontrollable anger and violence. Maybe that was part of that frustration. Do you feel you've now achieved that, 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 that dream as a boy of becoming someone has finally been uh, arrived at, that you've achieved that, John? I probably don't feel it every day in my, in my bones necessarily, but when I, really sit back and think about the journey I've been on then yeah definitely thanks for listening to this podcast and please share and follow us on social media the aim is to upload a new episode with a new guest every week if you want to support help produce or advertise on this podcast please get in touch if you think I should get someone on the show drop me a direct message via Instagram Twitter Facebook or any other means you have to make contact This episode was produced by Audio Avalanche. The original music by J-Row Productions. The cover design work by Studio Minerva. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 